Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. A few weeks after Katie and I were married in 2006, we loaded up a U-Haul truck with our stuff and we moved west to Pasadena, California, just outside of Los Angeles. In the moving truck went a queen-size bed, our various wedding gifts and dishes, small kitchen appliances, a couple bikes, Katie's futon from college, a coffee table that's been in my family for decades, and all of our non-winter clothing because L.A. There wasn't much more than that in the moving truck. Notably missing was any furniture for our apartment. We had no table and chairs at which we could eat. We had no dressers in which to put our non-winter clothing. We had no desk where either of us could work. We had no bookshelves on which we could put the books I needed to have for seminary classes. And since this was our first apartment and we didn't even know what the floor plan was. We were moving into it sight unseen. We didn't want to risk buying and moving out nicer pieces of furniture purchased from a certain family-owned furniture store located on US 23 and Hill Road that's been around for 111 years and is filled with the best furniture at the best prices. So we elected to get what we needed at a certain unnamed Scandinavian superstore that was located about 20 minutes from our new home. We made the trip out to Ikea one day and we ended up getting all sorts of things for our apartment, a couple dressers, a desk, a couple bookshelves, some bedside tables, a table with chairs, some wall art, picture frames, a room divider to make our 580 square foot apartment feel more cozy. (laughs) We also found a floating wall shelf that cost 20 bucks. And so we got it to put on the wall, $20 for a shelf. It was white and sleek and very minimalist. It came with this metal bracket that you installed first, then you slipped the shelf piece on top and it looked like it was just floating there. It was great. Sometime later, I will tell you the story of how we got all of this stuff ready to load up when we realized that we were driving a Saturn Ion and it wasn't going to all fit, and so we had to take two trips, and we literally left in a, in a moment of Midwestern naivete. We left 
half of our stuff sitting outside of the Ikea in Burbank, California, and drove half we could fit in our car, and then went back, and luckily our stuff was there and not stolen. We got it all installed, we got it all put together, we got it all put in place, and a couple months later, we were invited over to a fellow student's apartment for lunch. He and his wife were from Louisiana, and we enjoyed getting to know them. They were a few floors below us in our apartment building, and they also had visited Ikea, and they also had gotten the same floating wall shelf, but the way they had configured their apartment resulted in the shelf being about an inch and a half too long for the wall, and they needed to cut the shelf down. So he told me that he found a guy who had a table saw, and he took the shelf to the guy to trim down, which they did, but when they cut into this Ikea floating wall shelf that cost $19, they found that the inside of the shelf wasn't solid wood, for sure. It wasn't plywood. It wasn't even particle board. Inside the shelf, under the lacquered, sleek, minimalist exterior was a paper-made honeycomb. It's incredible engineering, but it's paper on the inside. And so when he cut through it to trim it, the whole structure became unsound and the shelf had to be thrown out. The inside was paper-filled. I suppose that's how they got away with charging $19 for it. Jesus tells a story today in the Gospels about a man whose life looked utterly amazing on the outside, yet whose inside was just a paper honeycomb pattern of emptiness. There is a hollowness to this man's life. You can find today's text in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. If you've got your pew Bibles in front of you, you may wish to follow along with us as we look at the text For those who are uh, opening their Bibles, you can turn to their right until you get to the New Testament and find your way to the Gospel of Luke. For those who need page numbers, you can find them in your order of worship. Luke chapter 12. Today's Gospel text begins with an inheritance dispute. Now, as a pastor, I have the privilege... And it is most of the time a privilege to sit down with families and help them plan funeral services. I count it a distinct honor and part of my job I like the most. But sometimes in the midst of funeral conversations with families, you stumble into inheritance disputes. You stumble into families who are arguing about who is going to get what from the person who has died. You realize, you learn quickly that there's a relative, distant relative who has come in from out of town to claim their rights and the family is in conflict over what's going to happen with the stuff. Today's gospel text begins with an inheritance dispute. Here's the context. Jesus is teaching. There are thousands of people uh, listening to him teach. If you go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 12, you can read this in verse 1. The crowd gathered by the thousands so that they trampled on each other. Jesus is surrounded. It's Coachella and Jesus. And Jesus is talking not to the crowds. He is speaking to his disciples. 
And what he is explaining to them in the verses that lead up to our text today is just how difficult it is to live out the way of God's kingdom in the world. He says, You're, you are going to be dragged before the powers that be. They are not going to like the way that you are living. They are going to have issues with you. Don't worry about what you're going to say, Jesus says. When that happens, the Spirit will tell you what to do. He is explaining to them the difficulties of living out Christian faith. And in the midst of this, in the middle of this conversation he's having with his disciples, somebody in the crowd interrupts him and sort of says, yeah, 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 let's get down to my stuff, though. Teacher, he says in verse 13, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. You don't need to know much about the context about family inheritances except for this. In those days, the family goods were passed down to the oldest of the siblings, and it was the oldest of the siblings' responsibilities to divide it up among the brothers. This particular brother feels like he has gotten slighted. He has been given less than what he thinks is right, and so he comes to Jesus, who is a rabbi, and he asks him to weigh in. Specifically, he says, here is the verdict I want you to read. Tell my brother to give me more than what I got. And Jesus has no time for this, right? Jesus says, no, I'm not your judge. I'm not your arbitrator. I'm not here to work out your family systems issues with you about who gets what of the inheritance. Instead, he says to his disciples, watch out. Look at verse 15. He says to, his, to them, to his disciples, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. The word that's used in Greek is a more intense word than just wanting something. Greed is just wanting something. This is avarice we're talking about. This is the insatiable hunger for more. Be on guard against all kinds of that kind of greed, Jesus says, because that will never tire of wanting something else. Be on guard. And then Jesus tells this parable to illustrate what avarice looks like. He tells a parable of a very, very wealthy man who had a well-producing farm who, who's, uh, whose crops produced abundantly one year, and he had no room to store them. So he tears down his old barns, he builds bigger barns, but that night finds out that he is going to die, and all the good things he has done for himself will now go to somebody else. And Jesus ends the parable by saying, so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. As we look at the parable today, as we look at this gospel reading today, I want to say three things about what, I think, three key ideas to keep in mind about the text and then I want to get to what it means to be rich towards God. So three things about the text I think you need to know. First, today's gospel reading is not about money. It's not about wealth. It's not about financial investments. It is about greed. It's not about shaming the wealthy. It's not about criticizing those people who have healthy and productive investment accounts. It's not about people who buy new cars or new houses. This is about 
avarice. It is about that insatiable desire for more. You can have avarice and have very little. And you can have avarice and have a lot. Jesus says, be on guard against all kinds of greed. The guy that wants Jesus to step in to his family dilemma presented something in his tone, something in his demands, something in his urgency that led Jesus to sniff out greed lurking beneath the surface. And Jesus uses his request as a way to explain that God's kingdom is not about accumulating an abundance or excess of goods. The first thing to keep in mind is that today's gospel reading is not about wealth. It is about greed. The second thing to keep in mind about today's gospel text is that the parable Jesus tells is a caricature. It is a portrait that exaggerates reality to make a point. The story of this very wealthy man with a wildly abundant farm is designed to paint a portrait for Jesus' disciples of how avarice works, how greed operates, how it sort of infiltrates the soul. So here's what it does. First, we note that the guy in the parable, the man, when faced with an abundance of resources, his first and only thought is about his own welfare. Look at verse 17. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. The guy has already been named as a wealthy person with abundant resources. Now he has extra abundance of things. And his first thought is, what should I do? Where should I store this stuff? So the first thing is, he thinks about himself. The second thing is that the man assumes that a good life was one where you relaxed, ate, drank, and were happy. Verse 19, he says to himself in a comical turn of things, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. For him, the end of life is about these things. Note that what is absent from this is any sense of devotion or allegiance to God. Note also that there is no devotion or sense of obligation to anybody else. This is how avarice works. It keeps it close to one's self. Third, the man, we note that he had no sense of purpose to his life, to his stuff, no sense of what you might do when you have more than enough. He asks the question, what should I do? And that's kind of supposed to be a funny question, like, surely you know somebody who could benefit. Surely you could step into somebody else's life. Surely you could bless somebody else, right? But in his world, it's just him, himself, and himself. He has no sense of others. He does not appear to have any sense of the needs in his community. He has no awareness that what one does with their stuff is part of one's relationship to God. You can see this by looking at how many first-person words the man uses. 
Look at verse, beginning in verse 17. He thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. The man's avarice is such that it has reduced his vision to just a mirror reflection of himself. The caricature that Jesus tells also shows where avarice eventually leads, and it leads to a resource-rich, inwardly obsessed, self-isolated, self-orbiting emptiness. It leads to a hollow life, sleek on the outside, empty on the inside. The man in the parable is the wall-mounted shelf from Ikea, paper-filled and structurally weak. The third thing that you need to keep in mind about this parable today or this story is that the man's behavior, his actions, his thoughts are judged by God to be foolish. In the Psalms, we read that the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And this is not talking about people who do not believe in a God. It's not talking about atheism. This is talking about people who live as if God doesn't really matter. The fool says, God's desires and my desires do not need to ever connect. God calls the man a fool, but note that I do not think that anybody in this man's circle of friends would think his actions are foolish. Build bigger barns to store up the excess goods the farm produced? Of course, that makes sense according to the ways of the world. It is wise according to the world's elite, but in God's vision, this is utterly foolish. It is foolish because it is effortless effortlessly self-effacing. There is no community in this man's imagination. There is no sense of God's laws concerning what one does with an abundance of crops or how the wealthy relate to the poor in a community. There is no awareness of God at all. The man is a fool to believe that it is his money, his grain, his fields his barn. There is no accountability beyond himself. And it reminds me of how when God's people were preparing to enter into the promised land and Moses is giving them his final sermon, his reminder of all that God has said, he says this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, take care. Same words Jesus uses here. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes. And then it says this. When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth so that he might confirm his promises to you. The man is called a fool by God, and when his life 
ends God's question to him, and the parable is, now what? Who gets all of this stuff you've stashed away? The conclusion of this text in Jesus' minds is, be rich towards God, which is a nice churchy thing to say. But what does it mean for us each, no matter what our socioeconomic level might be, no matter what our income statements may be, each of us has always a choice to go down the road, the practices that lead to avarice and greed, and the practices that lead to being rich towards God. What does that mean? What do we do? Being rich towards God remembers three things. The first thing we remember is that everything we have is a gift from God to be stewarded wisely and well. Every single thing we have in our life is a gift from God to be stewarded wisely and well. This is more of a personal inventory we each take. When we look at our life, we look at the things we have, we look at the resources we are able to tap into, we look at the community around us, the friendships, the love that we These are gifts from God to be stewarded. How do we affirm that? How do we not slip into that it's mine, but slip in rather into the awareness that it as a gift from God? The second thing that we must remember to safeguard against avarice, to be rich towards God, is that the good life, is not about eating, drinking, and being merry, though that may be a component. But the good life is one that is lived with obligations towards God and with obligations towards our neighbors. We exist not as individuals on parallel tracks, but we exist in communities with one another here in this church, here in our neighborhoods, in our families, We coexist with others, and in that coexistence, we have a spiritual obligation to be aware of what is going on in the lives and the hearts and the resources of others, so that our abundance may be used not to fill our barns, but rather to bless somebody else. We are part of a larger whole. So one safeguard against avarice, one way we are rich towards God, is by practicing hospitality with one another, by blessing a stranger. The third thing that we remember, the third thing that we must remember about what it means to be rich towards God is this. Giving your tithes and offerings to the church is about your own soul. It is not about what God needs. Do not put money in the box in the back because you think God needs it. Do not put money in the box in the back because you want the church to stay open, but rather give generously out of your abundance so that you might safeguard against the creeping power of avarice because over time, greed speaks to each of us and says you could do more if you just kept more for yourself. You could have more if you gave away less. Give generously to safeguard against the creeping power of greed. Give the gifts of your time 
so that your soul can develop a new kind of rhythm. So we don't keep speaking as if we have no time to give, but when we purposefully give of the time we think we don't have, we find we have plenty of it. Give gifts of your talents so that your soul recognizes you have been blessed in order to bless somebody else. And give gifts of your treasure so your soul does not begin to crave more stuff and bigger barns. When I was pastoring in Ithaca, Michigan, it was a farming community, and one of the families that I had I visited quite often was the Vanderbeek family, and Grace Vanderbeek, uh, her husband had predeceased before I came there, but he was a farmer well-known in the area. His parents were farmers well-known in the area. His grandparents immigrated from Germany, where they too were farmers. And as I was, I began to cultivate a relationship with Grace Vanderbeek, who I uh, loved Grace tremendously. She did always, whenever my beard got a little long, threatened to come over to my house in the night and cut it for me. So I had to always make sure the doors were locked when I was growing my beard. But Grace and I would begin to talk about what it meant to be a farmer. And, and when her husband died, she could no longer do it herself, and so she leased her land to uh, a, sort of a, a large company who came in and farmed the land and then gave, uh, gave Grace, based on what they produced, a cut. And it worked out fine, and she was thrilled with this. She liked the way they took care of the land. But she told me one year, she asked me to come over, and she sat me down, and she said, now I want to let you know that my gift to the church this year is going to be a bit higher than it normally is. Now, church, I want to tell you, I don't know anything about what anybody gives. That is not what I, that is not the data I have. I don't know anything about what Grace actually gave, but she was telling me her gift was going to grow this year. And I said, oh, okay, why is that? And she said, well, something that my husband's grandfather said was that whenever the land produced more than what we expected, we always give a portion away. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. And she says, yes, her grandfather did it when there was just a little bit more her husband did it when there was a little bit more, and now this year she had grown three times as many soybeans as she was hoping to grow, and so she was giving away to several different places, the church being one of them. And I was struck by this. I was struck by the habituation of this practice in this family, that it wasn't just something she was inventing, it was something she was carrying on, a sense of obligation to somebody else when there was and abundance. And I remember just being really grateful that God's, she, she did not say anything about God or the Bible telling us to do this or anything about the church. This was just purely a something in her that was saying, I need to give this to somebody else, to something other than myself. Rich towards God. Being rich towards God is not necessarily about having more things but it is about what we do with the things we have. So might you find yourself this week in a position where you are able to begin that slow work of safeguarding against the creeping power of greed. Might you find in your gifts of your time, your talents, your treasure, that you are finding yourself walking after our Savior, Jesus Christ, who taught us that the way of God's kingdom is in how we live alongside and with one another before God.
Let us do that together as a church this week. I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say, Amen.